And um, yeah, really good to see people here. Thanks for taking the time to come and um, yeah, have some discussion about how we can change the world. So badly needed if we're all going to survive. I just wanted to start by acknowledging that we're on Gadigal land and the, acknowledging the resistance of Gadigal people to the system of British colonialism and then the system of Australian capitalism, you know, which has been imposed you know, on these lands since the invasion in 1788. And I think it is quite important um, you know, when, we're, when we're talking about these big questions about how the world works, how it operates, you know, to situate ourselves and look at where we are. Because it's such a dominant idea out there in society that the mainstream values of the capitalist world, you know, that it's a dog-eat-dog world, that people are just about, you know, self-interest and getting ahead and dominating other people, you know, and that's the thing that motivates human beings, you know, is actually something, a philosophy of life that has only existed on this continent for like a fraction of a second compared to the enormity of the, you know, time that humans have occupied and looked after these lands. You know, there were no <laughs> bosses here. There were no kings here. There were no wars of conquest. There was no oppression. You know, people actually, you know, lived, you know, along very, very strict egalitarian lines. You know, everything was about providing for people around you and looking after the land, you know, that you were, that you were a part of. That, that ideology, you know, of, you know, it's sort of selfish, rapacious, you know, self-interest, that exists to justify a particular social arrangement and a particular social system, an obscene social system, the capitalist social system that we now live under, you know, where we have a situation <coughs> where 26 people, the latest Oxfam report, showed that the 26 richest people in the world own the same combined wealth as the bottom 50% of humanity. 26 people own the same wealth as half of humanity. Like that absolutely obscene situation, you know, is only justified by that ideology, you know, this capitalist ideology that we, that we talked about before, but it's not in any way, you know, can, can be put down to some sort of immutable human nature. In, in, in a lot of ways, actually, I think it's completely, you know, alien to, you know, so much of who, you know, who we are, you know, who we are as, as human beings. So, you know, we're going to talk today a bit about some of the an introduction to some of the ideas of, of Karl Marx. And, um, you know, these very foundational ideas for, for our group, uh, our group Solidarity, and, and for, you know, many uh, people, thousands, millions of people around the world that are engaged, you know, in a process of socialist, of, of socialist struggle are the ideas of Marx. But it's not about, you know, why are we interested in the ideas of this guy who, you know, died 140 years ago, did most of his main writing 160 years ago, you know, just because we're some, like, cult who follow it, like the Bible or something, is some genius. That's not it at all. It's actually about appreciating the extent to which those ideas were a concentrated expression of the early lessons that were being learned in the formation of a working class movement for the first time in human history. The emergence of what we now know as a working class, the, the struggles that were posed you know, to that working class you know, and the lessons that were sort of learned out of those struggles. So Marx himself was first and foremost a revolutionary activist. He was actually on the executive committee of what was called the International Workingmen's Association which was established in the 1860s by major trade unions in Britain, revolutionaries across the continent and also, you know, in, in, in the United States to try and link up 
the nascent workers' movements that were, you know, that were sort of springing up in the heartlands of industrial capitalism at that time, where people were becoming conscious that the main ideologies of nationalism and racism and that, that were used by their own rulers, you know, to justify the division of the world, worked directly counter to the interests of those workers who had far more in common with their experiences across borders you know, as people that were forced to sell their labour power, they had far more in common with each other as an international working class than they did with the ruling class. Like, that was the first formation of international workers' organisation, and Marx was at the middle of it. All the other people on the executive committee were actually, like, workers themselves in unions and stuff, but he was there, you know, as an, as an intellectual. So he was sort of distilling out, you know, the lessons that were, that were, that were being learned, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the process of struggle. And all the fundamental contradictions that were built into the system that people were coming up against at that time, you know, the mass poverty, you know, and misery that's created with the establishment of capitalism, the exploitation, you know, that workers face, as I said before, the racism, the ideologies of racism that went along with the process of imperial conquest, you know, and subjugation of, of, of coloured people across the world, all of these ideas, even the degradation of the environment. You can actually go back and look at the writings, the writings of Marx in this period about the way that this new social system capitalism was actually destroying the foundations of its very existence, destroying, you know, destroying the natural, natural world. All of those major contradictions which ex existed in that system at that time are still with us today. And not only are they still with us today, but they're actually magnified a hundred times today than they were you know, back in the 1850s and 60s and actually are now posing far more critical questions about the future of the existence of human beings living, you know, on, on this planet are being posed far more sharply now than they were back when, you know, back when you first got the formation of the, of the workers' movement. So, you know, it's a living uh, history as well and a living tradition. It's not just, you know, a few ideas that formed a long time ago. Millions of people, you know, struggling in very vastly different circumstances, you know, that from the mines in South Africa, you know, through to the factories of the heartlands of industrial capitalism, through to Vietnamese peasants resisting US imperialism during the Vietnam War, the Black Panther Party in the United States, all of these movements have identified as Marxist and have built on, you know, those revolutionary traditions that have actually that have actually grown up over those generations. And we very much see ourselves, you know, as part of carrying forward, you know, the development of that of the development of that of that um, political tradition. At the core of the political tradition is a methodology for how you actually understand the world around you that's known as historical materialism. And I'm just going to go over some of the fundamentals of historic of a historical materialist approach to looking at and understanding the world. And what historical materialism says first and foremost is that if you want to understand any particular aspect of a society, if you want to understand its legal system, if you want to understand its cultural forms, if you want to understand anything really about that society, you must first and foremost look at how production takes place in that society, how people actually produce themselves, where we are beings who make ourselves from the world around us, who actually physically construct you know, ourselves from the world around us. So how does that process of, of making yourself and making your society through interaction with the material world, what Marx called the metabolism between humans and the, and, and the material world, you know, what does that look like and, and what are its fundamental characteristics? So writing in the 1840s, really early on in the development of his thought, you know, Marx, Marx wrote, the first premise of all human existence and therefore of all history is the premise namely that men, I'm a gendered language, he was a creature of his time, but he's not just talking about men, that men must be in a position to live in order to be able to make history. But life involves, before everything else, eating and drinking, a habitation, 
clothing, and many other things. The first historical act is thus the production of the means to satisfy these needs, the production of material life itself. And indeed, this is a historical act, a fundamental condition condition of all history, which today, as thousands of years ago, must daily and hourly be fulfilled merely in order to sustain human life. Okay, so the first thing that is absolutely indispensable in any society before you want to talk about anything else that goes on in that society is the, is the creation of the, of, of the human beings themselves. That's the basic building block. Art, philosophy, politics, you know, that's all, you know, come, comes on top. And in order to make ourselves, we, first, we also have to enter into social relations. Human beings are incapable of labouring on the world to make themselves unless they do it as a collective. Marx actually described this as being our species being. You know, we exist as in, in, a, in a process of collective and cooperative labour. So, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I, you know, go and, you know, get the, get the bread, you know, out of the bread tin and get the peanut butter to put on the bread to go to, you know, to, to start my day... Thousands of workers, in fact, have cooperated in a process of production in the, in the society we live in today to put that jar of peanut butter in front of me. You've had the workers that have been out in the fields tilling the fields, the ones that have picked the peanuts, transported them to the factory, processed them in the factory, made, the, you know, made the, you know, all the packaging that it goes in, transported it to the supermarket, packed themselves on the supermarket, sold it to me at the supermarket. Thousands of people have engaged in a cooperative process so I can reach up and grab a jar of peanut butter off the shelf. Okay? This is a very different way of making a human being to people here on Gadigal land before the invasion, where things were far more direct process of metabolism with the environment. It's far more right in front of you. There's a direct process of cooperation with, you know, people that you're intimately connected to, you know, sort of in, 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 in that process. So you can look at the system of production in both of those societies to analyse so much more about how those societies actually operate and, and, and what the contradictions are within those societies. And the most important thing about a capitalist society the most important fundamental characteristic of capitalist society is that the vast majority of the population are alienated from the means of production. We do not own or have direct access to the things we need to make ourselves. These are separate from us, separated from us. If we want to actually gain access you know, to the you know, fundamental conditions for making our own life, the only way to get them is to sell our labour power to a boss to sell our labour party to, to, um, to, to, the, to the capitalist class, right? That's the, that's the fundamental characteristic of, of capitalist society. Far different, far different from many forms of social organisation throughout human history, you know, where, where even, you know, there were times, as I argued before, here before colonisation, you know, other, other places in the world, everywhere in the world actually, at some point in time, where there was no social class at all, where people lived in strict egalitarian ways. You know, even you had the development of social class, you know, in different areas of the world with the development of the agricultural revolution, the emergence of, a, of the importance of controlling a surplus product, the surplus grain, everything that went along with that, with the development of a ruling class in those societies. You know, even in, even in those sorts of societies, you do not see what you see today, where ordinary people have got no access to means of production, where, the, where we're completely beholden to, to selling our labour power. 
And there's something that's quite important actually about labor power for Marx and for us and for, you know, for, for everyone who goes through the process of selling their labor power. And that's, and that's that for human beings, labor is actually our creative essence, right? This is actually who we are as human beings is, is, is defined by our interactions with the outside world, how we actually interact with and transform that world. And as I said before, we're part, this, this is our species being. This is done in cooperation you know, with, with other people. So, under capitalism, we became alienated from control of this creative potential. We have no control over this fundamental characteristic that makes us, that makes us human. So, you know, Marx wrote about the impact, you know, on human psychology and on the development, you know, of, you know, of, of society in conditions where people are alienated from this, you know, this, this thing that's so important, so important to them. I mean, you think about it, right? You have to sell your labour power to a boss and then they have complete control over what you do with it. You work for the supermarket, they tell you where to stand, what shelves to pack, blah, blah, blah. You work for the call centre, they give you the script, they give you the numbers, you make the calls. You don't actually have a say in that thing that's so fundamental to, 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 to who you are and, and to be able to, your, your process of self-expression. So um, Marx wrote, in what then consists the alienation of labour? First, in the fact that labour is external to the worker, i.e. that it does not belong to his nature, that therefore he does not realise himself in his work, that he denies himself in it, that he does not feel at ease in it, but rather unhappy, that he does not develop any free physical or mental energy, but rather mortifies his flesh and ruins his spirit. The worker, therefore, is only himself when he does not work. And it's in his work that he feels outside of himself. He feels at home when he's not working, and when he's working, he does not feel at home. His labour, therefore, is not voluntary but forced. It's forced labour. It's not the gratification of a need, but only a means to gratify needs outside of itself. Its alien nature shows itself clearly by the fact that work is shunned like the plague as soon as no physical or other kind of coercion exists. And we could all attest it how much we love holidays and how sad it is when you go back and whatever. So we're alienated from our labour process. We're alienated from other people. Actually, this thing that's fundamental to our existence as human beings is a commodity, right? It's a commodity that is bought and sold on the marketplace. So when a capitalist sits down and wants to bring together the, the, the conditions of production to produce other commodities, it needs its, they need to buy their plant, they need to buy their raw materials, they need to you know, buy, buy their equipment, and they need to buy labour power. And we're just another number that they that they that they purchase, and and, and you treated that you treated like this, you know. And obviously, every human being, we have our own distinct histories, with our, our own distinct characteristics. We're all unique in some way and have something very unique to contribute. Doesn't matter to capitalism. What matters to them is that you're just a unit of labour that they can buy. This is also the case with the natural environment. If you think, you know, every ecosystem is unique. Every ecosystem has particular characteristics, has, you know, particular creative potentials. Doesn't matter to capitalism. It's just an import. It's just a commodity to be bought and sold in the marketplace. You know, and so the destruction and alienation of human beings goes absolutely hand in hand with the destruction and the, you know, alienation and what we're seeing now, the, you know, cataclysmic <laughs> destruction of the, you know, of the, of, of the ecosystem that we rely on, that we rely on for life. Okay, Marx talks about capital actually presupposes the dissolution of the relation to the earth, the land and soil as a national condition of production to which human beings relate as our own organic being. So that breaking that relationship of being able to actually have a conscious interaction with particular <coughs> ecosystems which we come to understand, that's also part and parcel of capitalism and so much, so much part of the problems that we, so much part of the problems that we see today. 
Okay, so the process of capitalist production, when they make their decisions to actually bring people to, together in the productive process, this only happens when they're going to make a profit, right? They're literally the only thing that motivates why and where production will take place is whether the capitalists will, will, will be able to, to make a profit, not to satisfy you know, any human need. So this, of course, leads to obscene situations where you have like one seventh of the, sorry, one in seven of the properties in Sydney is left empty any night of the week because actually the conditions for the people who own it, it's better to keep it off the market at that stage than keep it on the market, while you have mass homelessness, mass and growing homelessness crises in this very city. Every, every second of every day, someone somewhere dies of hunger, while at the same time, every second of every day, they actually destroy food en masse because the conditions, you know, are not profitable for it to be, you know, sort of sold on the, you know, on, on, the, on the market at that particular time. And I think the climate crisis poses the most obvious obscene example of this situation where we have we know exactly what the problem is the continued pumping out of you know obscene quantities of fossil fuels we know exactly what happens in order to do it we have to change that situation we've got the technology to be able to actually operate where we're not pumping out all of these fossil fuels but does it happen no and why doesn't it happen because it's not profitable you know people would drop everything tomorrow to be able to use their creative potential to actually go out there and act and do what's necessary to get us out of the current crisis that we're in but we don't have access to the means of production it's the capitalist class that owns and controls and runs you know and runs and runs that system so for us that's why we say we don't live in a democracy right there's this you know facade of bourgeois democracy it's important we can talk about how you interact with the you know electoral system we're not saying it's not important to interact with and fight within the you know electoral system as it exists but that's not actually where the main levers of power are in society the main levers of power are in the system of production and that is a dictatorship of capital they make all the decisions about what is going to be produced and it's only the profit motive that drives, drives, drives those decisions. And in the final analysis, the parliament then becomes subordinate to, where we do have so-called democracy, becomes subordinate to the needs of the capitalist class and their productive system. So if you think about any debate that happens in the parliament, they control the agenda. Like if they, want, if, they, if they actually wanted there to be a proper debate about the transition we need, you know, to solve the climate crisis and flooded the pages of their papers with the debate about, you know, well, you know, how are we going to do it? What are the technologies we need? What are the actions we need to take? That's what would be dominating the agenda. But they don't do that. <laughs> they actually make sure that the debate that happens within the pages of the Daily Telegraph or the Sydney Morning Herald or Channel 9 News or whatever it is, media that is controlled directly by the capitalist class, this tiny little blinkered window narrow discussion about maybe what market mechanism we might be able to put in place and so capitalists can continue to make profit while we might have some slow little transition to a few more gas-fired power stations and maybe a little bit of wind or something like that you know so but obviously what we need to do is we need to take the power off these people Right? We need to actually strip them of the control that they have over the productive system, but you never see that discussed on, on the you know, Today Show, you know, on the, in, the, in the morning you know, discussed, because they control the agenda, they control the ideological apparatus, they control you know, the terms of the debate that exist in the society. Okay, so I'm probably coming to the end of my time, but it's important for us to emphasise what our actual alternative is, what we're talking about when we talk about revolutionary socialism. Because this Marx wasn't just brilliant in terms of his analysis of what are the main contradictions within capitalist society. He also has this thing, one of the main contradictions in capitalist society is not just the crisis they create, but the fact that capitalism also creates its own grave diggers in creating the working class. Because the working class isn't just completely alienated, you know, and miserable and beaten down. We're also brought together in the process of production in these 
often enormous workplaces where we can come to see through a process of struggle that it's actually our labour which keeps the whole thing going. And it's actually our capacity collectively, if we act together, we can bring that system to a halt. So you think about the, the, the transportation system that operates in this country, the electricity system that operates, the media system, the universities, the way the food is organised. It's not CEOs who keep those things running. It's ordinary workers day in, day out, going to work, working with each other you know, in, these, in these workplaces that keep, that keep those things going. And because capitalism pushes us to fight to survive, you know, it brings us together and then it tries to cut our wages. And then so the people are in a workplace all together really upset about the fact that their wages are being cut, starting to have discussions about what are we going to do to try and change this situation, people can realise the collective power they actually have as workers to collectively withdraw their labour and to strike and to organise, you know, as, you know, in unions. And then you can see throughout history, in times of social crises, be it economic crises, in times of war, in times of acute, you know, things are really terrible, you can see this process of people coming together to fight around their interests, which is often just restricted to joining a union and fighting in your union for better working conditions, can suddenly spill over into a far more profound challenge to the entire way that the system, you know, operates itself. You know, and this is what happened in the Russian Revolution in 19. 1917, when workers collectively in their, in their workplaces set up Soviets, right, direct collective democracy of workers, delegated representatives going to mass meetings to actually say, we're going to take the whole thing off them. We're going to take the productive system into our own hands and we're going to organise militia. And if they try and come and take it back off us, we're going to fight. You know, and that's what we mean when we say that we want a revolution, you know, a socialist revolution. We're talking about ordinary people collectively taking control of the means of production that we have been denied. And it's not just Russia in 1917. You look any time where, you know, workers have done this in, in, in times of crisis, there's plenty of inspiring examples. Spain in the 1930s, you know, Iran in, 1970, in 1979, you know, even under the so-called communist regimes, which we call state capitalist regimes, because they were only interested again in production for production's sake in, in, in Eastern Europe. You know, in Poland in, in, in 1981, you had workers' councils again springing up and people saying, we can run society ourselves, we can take the power into our own hands. In Egypt, the Egyptian revolution, which brought down the dictator in 2011, you saw a glimpse, you know, with people starting to organise mass, you know, workplace meetings and mass union meetings and starting to discuss how can we run society fundamentally differently. So that's the sort of revolutionary change that we're pushing for. What we do day to day is we go out and build every struggle because in every single social struggle that's involved, you can see the little seeds of people starting to come to a realisation about how the system's working and, 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 and seeing their own power. We're all in our unions, we all fight hard for our unions to, you know, take as much strike action as possible, to organise and fight as much as possible. We also get out there and we fight racism, we confront, you know, the obscene situation, what's going on to asylum seekers and refugees, what's taking place in terms of the, you know, horrific discrimination against Aboriginal people. All of these struggles we see is very, very important for exposing what's wrong with the system and trying to win little bits of justice in the here and now. But it's also about putting forward a vision of what could be, what could be fundamentally what could be fundamentally different and I would just really encourage people just to finish you know if you're here on campus it's in the struggle in the activist movement that you're going to learn the most that you learn it's not sitting in the tute room I mean tute room can be very good the discussions can be very important but I was active here on this campus for five six years and I tell you I learned so much more about 
what the nature of the police are when they come to break up our demonstrations when we're just trying to actually demand, you know, public education. What the nature of the Labor Party is, you know, when you're working with Labor activists and they're really good and we're all working together and then you see the parliamentarians go in and betray you and vote for the legislation that we've been out on the street, you know, actually campaigning against. You learn about the media and what it represents when you see the lies printed about your violent demonstration, you know, on the front page of the paper when you know you were attacked by the police and beaten by the police the day before. You know, it's actually that process of pushing up against the system and trying to figure out how to change the system, you know, that you get the real clarity about how the world's working. And if you do that collectively, if you do that together, if you do that in a group like Solidarity coming together and arguing out these questions, you know, I think this is absolutely what's required, you know, in the, in the, in, you know, in the, in, given the current crises that are facing us for us to all be able to step up and make those fundamental changes that are needed. So really encourage people to get involved. Thank you.